Hey guys, this is Steve. This is episode number 95 with Dr. Tony Lopez. Yes, you heard that right. Dr. Dr. Tony is not a medical doctor, but is a doctor of business administration. He's the deputy town manager of the city of Miami Lakes. And what's cool about what Lopez brings to the table here is he's he's using his doctor of business administration to help us understand how to run cities more efficiently and adopting business principles so you can provide better services for lower costs in your city. Stay with us as we talk to Dr. Tony Lopez. Greetings, I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host, and each episode we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. Today's a first for us, and I'm really excited about this because this is some fresh new information. A topic, uh, this is episode 95, and I can't believe we really haven't touched on this topic yet. And it's an important topic. It's about improving efficiencies um, in other areas of local government by th- viewing it through the prism of how can we be more businesslike? Obviously, you want to be more businesslike, but obviously you can't declare bankruptcy. You can't shut her down. You still have to kind of stay stay uh, at it. And your and your goal is not necessarily profit, right? But your goal is public service and doing good things. So here here we have with us the uh, deputy uh, town manager of the town of Miami Lakes. Dr. Tony Lopez. Yeah, you heard that right. I think this is our first PhD. Uh, it's not a PhD. It's a it's a doctorate of business administration from FIU. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the degree because I'm really intrigued by this. This is really kind of cool. Yeah, the um, doctorate of business administration degree is is equivalent to a PhD degree. Uh, it's. Did you have to do a big thesis? I did. Oh, I you know I was working on my master's degree, and when they told me I had to do a thesis. After three months of trying, I said, I'm done. And it went comps. So tell, tell us about the degree. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the program, actually, I was part of the first class of the uh, Doctor of Business Administration program at Florida International University. Um, and it, it, the degree is really practitioner-focused, um, allowing those who are working in uh, professional roles to be able to complete a terminal degree um, uh, while they're working. Uh, so I had an opportunity to do that at a basically in what they call a R1 institution or research-based uh, institution. Yeah. So we traditionally, just like a PhD student, had to do a dissertation, um, had to present it, uh, and um, had to defend it um, in front of a group of our peers. And um, it was a really great experience. Um, me coming from the public sector, I was one of, one of the few or, or the only real local government um, yeah, I mean, normally we would see group. people say, I want to get a master's or a doctorate in public administration, uh, land use planning, those those areas. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody getting an advanced degree in business administration as a means of becoming a better city manager or town manager. What what parts of the program? So, I mean, you were so so you're sort of an outlier in your program, right? Uh, what tell me what the program teaches just a little bit. Well, and like any terminal program, it really teaches you how to become a researcher. 
um, and really do a deep dive. Uh, and this is what I encourage anyone who's interested in such a program. You really have to have a burning question that you want to solve and you really want to look into. All right. Uh, what was your burning question? My burning question uh, really had to do with public-private partnerships. And what are the factors that drive the success of public-private partnerships for local government services and infrastructure? So let's go, let's go right into it. What are some of the factors? Because there's not a person listening on this call, on this podcast, sorry, who isn't, you know, a CRA. Uh, right now, Deerfield Beach is looking to sell a piece of property to a business, but they want to dictate what goes on that property. Very, very valuable piece of property, so they're going to develop a public-private partnership there. We see them all the time. But, and let, let me back up for a second. Explain in your mind what is a public-private partnership and how does it work? Yeah, so a public-private partnership is basically a long-term contract um, that the public sector... Um, enters with a private partner for the development of a project, an uh, infrastructure project, or for service delivery. Um, in its purest sense, what, what we typically see at this type of project is where um, the government has a need. Um, it could be a prison, it could be an educational facility, it could be a park, um, it could be a water plant, uh, and they really don't have the means to self-finance that, or there may be an interest in having a private partner come in and provide a solution to build, operate, and maintain the facility for its lifespan. So, I mean, just for a second, it never dawned on me until you were just speaking that there's a thousand public-private partnerships in every local business. I mean, if you, if you farm out building a road, all right, um, you a trash hauler, uh, many, very few cities, uh, municipalities, um, tr haul their own trash, right? Some of them do have some trucks and they can do backup, um, but they usually subcontract and that's a public private partnership. And so at some level, these permeate local government like crazy healthcare providers, uh, building a new building, uh, repairing a building, putting in new, uh, electrical systems, all that kind of stuff that, that would fall in your mind under the public private partnership. Yes and no. And I think this is where there's some uh, differentiation when we're looking at public-private yeah. partnerships in terms of the study that I, I conducted. Um, there are differences between privatization, outsourcing, and what we call or look at as a public-private partnership. That is what you just mentioned when you farm out or outsource, for example, to a private provider to maintain your roads. Um, that would really, in essence, be there's a continuum of public-private yeah, partnerships. Yeah, uh, this so is so this new. would be on more of a, a of the side of outsourcing. When we're looking at this public-private partnership model that I've in essence studied, was um, where there's an opportunity where the government may have real estate and has land, um, uh, but and they have a need, so they have a private partner come in. And let's say they want to develop a water plant. Well, let's let's property. use the topic of the day: affordable housing, right? Okay, so, affordable housing is a okay. So I have a, I have an eight acre piece of property, and uh, I want I want to see our affordable housing crisis uh, addressed. So would that be? And I sell the land to the developer, or I, so so help me understand this continuum. Do I sell the land to them, and then 
say, but you got to build homes and they got to be $180,000. Is that how? Generally, um, the public sector would retain the rights to the land, but the pub private uh, provider would come and develop on that land and it would be a long-term contract or lease agreement. And in that agreement, um, typically it would be a long-term agreement. Right. That would spell out all of the requirements, just like you mentioned, develop 180 units. You're going to operate, maintain those units um, for the lifespan of that contract on the land. The and government would, or the, 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 the owner would. Or, what's the, the, diff- the so private I, party would. So I have, I have three acres, yeah. and I need affordable housing. And I say, I'll sell it to you if you'll build affordable housing. And now I'm out of the business, right, as the government. Is that a public-private partnership? That, in essence, almost a, like almost a privatized agreement. You're out of the that's, picture. Okay. You're selling the land. So that's privatization. I'm out it, of the business of doing that. Well, in a way, you're, there in that case, you're completely out of it as a pub, as a public sector because you've sold the land. Right. So that's so I so, privatized that service. Yes. To, and, to provide and, affordable housing. In terms of privatizing, a lot of times that would be um, in the instance of um, we'll, we'll see. Uh, a jail facility that the public sector may have, they want no operations, they want no maintenance, then they will privatize that and provide I just want that. to pay you a fee, you provide the service. There you go. That, and a public-private partnership is where I stay in the business. Well, you retain the rights to land, you retain certain benefits out of that deal. So, um, like I mentioned, uh, a water plant, we have some land, we want to, we want a we have some private interest that wants to build it, maintain it for the purposes of the private sector's benefit, right? They want to collect some revenues. Right. But at the same time, the public sector retains the benefit of getting their water uh, delivered to their homes. So in those cases, like you talk about water plant, then you overbuild capacity so that you can sell to neighboring municipalities that capacity so they don't have to build a water plant. That's keeping it in-house. That's not, you know, I may have Joe's water treatment plant building services build it for me, but I, I maintain and hold the operations. Th- that is an example of a potential public-private partnership. Okay. Um, in a traditional sense, the company would still retain the operation and, and maintenance. Okay. But all that is spelled out in the agreement. So whatever rights the public sector wants to retain, they can retain, or they basically share those those uh, responsibilities with the private sector. Okay. So they, all they're doing is we're the landowner we're, and we're getting a lease payment or we're getting a lease payment and we're getting rev, uh, a revenue share out of the deal. It's really, uh, uh, um, basically there are different models of how you can break up this public-private private, pub, public partnership agreement but in the most traditional sense, and I'll give you an example, in Miami, um, uh, we had Port of Miami, uh, and a public-private partnership was the building of an underground tunnel to allow for freight to go underground and be able to deliver... Not an Elon Musk tunnel. Not the Elon Musk <laughs> tunnel. Um, but this is real. It's built. It's done. So what they did is they provide the opportunity um, to the private sector... Um, there were some interested parties who wanted to build a, a tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, they would gain the revenue of the tolls that were oh, generated. Oh, so the private part, the private rent. company would. The private uh, sector would obtain the, the, those revenues. And at the same time, the public sector had the benefit um, to the shipping companies of the service. Of expedited 
uh, transit through the port. Okay, so we go from you know complete keeping it in house privatization as the extreme, and then the public private partnership. So, so give me some examples of you know you said your your passion was what makes these things tick, what makes them work. Tell me a little bit about what makes a good private partnership, and what are some of the things people need to avoid. Yeah, so we. Um, I actually was able to conduct a study with practitioners in the state of Florida. So, oh, cool. Um, the, the study, and I'm actually going to be releasing a publication probably in the next couple of months um, about the critical success factors that drive um, these public-private partnerships for local government. Does this get published in a public administration journal or in a private business journal? Uh, we are right now, um, the journal publication is being targeted at a, what they call the Engaged Management Review. So it's a practitioner scholar journal. Okay. Uh, government practitioner or business practitioners? In general, practitioner scholars. So okay. it's, it is targeted mainly for those who are in the doctorate of business administration field. Um, but that was one of the main reasons that I took part of this program is um, these concepts need both input, not only from the public sector, yeah. but also from the private sector. Yeah, because the government thinks, hey, I got a great idea, and the business is like, oh, no. Uh, I mean, I, I regularly review RFPs and, and for my business, and I'm like, who wrote this? I mean, who thinks we can do this, you know, that this is something that can be done? And then invariably, when the project actually takes off, it's nothing like the RFP, but having that partnership. Okay, so back to what are the elements, what, what did we learn here? What, what, what makes a good public-private public partnership? Number one is a relationship. Uh, there has to be um, a strong, positive relationship between the two parties. And uh, what was an interesting element as part of the study was we looked at how stakeholders, the influence of stakeholders, both from the government sector the private party and also the end user have on a factor like relationship. Um, and what we saw is the relationship and the influences that the government and the private sector have on the relationship are critical to the delivery of these types of partnerships. So when you say relationship, do you mean like a legal relationship or just a person? You know, what, what does that look like? I'm not, I'm not clear on that. Well, there are several... Um, intricacies in terms of the relationship. Uh, you have the two parties. Um, are they speaking the same language? Are they... Um, are they aligned on their goals? Right? Are they aligned on their goals? Uh, so basically what we're looking at is, is it, are, are there, like you mentioned, are the goals... Um, the same, the so this toll... This bridge toll, hey, if I build a thing, I have a steady stream of revenue for mailbox money for a long time, right? Because now that it's built, I've invested $30 million on this tunnel, and now I'm going to be deriving revenues for an extended period of time. That's my goal, but that aligns with the city's goal of having a fully functioning tunnel that can deliver folks to. So item one, are, are, are the relationship, meaning are they aligned in, in what they want to achieve? Because it is, it is interesting sometimes when you see your business get together with the local government and they're, they're completely speaking different languages. Uh, whether it's how you develop the project management, whether it's, you know, what are the outcome goals oriented? And if they're not aligned, it's, it's impossible to move forward. Yeah. And there's things such as having a mutual understanding, uh, having shared responsibility in the project. That's also equitable. You guys take care of this. We'll take care of that. Uh, also, 
is the project's societal goals, or it, do both the private sector and the public sector have the same goals and mission for this project? Well, sometimes it may be thought that the private sector's mindset is all about revenue. Uh, they also want to be good community partners. And I think this is an element that's forgotten um, a lot of times when the public sector is interacting with the private sector in these types of deals. Uh, there's a lot of fear around that in terms of the private sector. Oh, you just want profit. You just want profit. It's a misunderstanding, but, yeah. It goes um, to relationships. A lot of times, and, and we're seeing this also in, in the South Florida area, there's a soccer stadium that's being proposed to be built on a golf course, um, public golf course. That is um, a prototypical public-private partnership. And there's a back and forth because there's this fear that it's all about the private sector's uh, goals and desires and that they're going to be coming way ahead out of this project. That's left to be seen, and that's part of this evaluation process after the fact. You know, w what is the success of the project? Was the relationship um, truly strong? That's going to be a, a big driver behind whether yeah, the project is successful. I remember, like, the public-private partnership of, of BB&T um, down in Broward, and the BBT Center, I know they even do they still call it that, um, but that they they seem to have gotten disaligned at some point when, and then the city had to come back, the, the county had to come back and give them more money, and it was it became a hostile relationship. It was almost like a hostage taking, like, well, we'll take our hockey team and go somewhere else. Um, it's like, well, wait a second, you know, and so there's an example where their goals were not aligned, where they didn't have a shared outcome that they wanted, and. The, the hockey team was like, well, we're losing money. And the city's, the county's like, well, that's not our fault. We built this thing. We funded it. We gave you this. And it's like, well, if we don't leave. Now the government is held, being held hostage to what at the time was a pretty popular hockey team. It was ironic. We were, we were brought in to assist in the project. And the hockey team was losing. So people cared less. You know, <laughs> I suppose if it was a Tampa Bay Lightning after winning two Stanley Cups, it would have been a very different scenario. But there's a good example where they're not sharing their, their, their butting heads. Another example that comes to mind is, you know, there's a lot of municipal utilities, right? And they're running and uh, they can provide good revenue because the money, the profits don't go, they don't leave the community, they stay there and they can fund other services. Um, and with some of these attempted takeovers by private utilities, that's exactly the opposite of what you're talking about. So what happens... I, I know there's been very few of these, but if, if somebody does do a takeover, how does that, in the, does that impact it negatively in the long run, or does that eventually settle in? And again, this is where we look at these um, options of privatization, right, or, or in, and especially when it comes to utilities. Um, ultimately, uh, one of the biggest concerns is that the public sector loses a little bit of control and loses um, uh, their say in terms of the services being delivered. Um, so uh, the takeovers, at one sense, it's, it's all a matter of, of perception. Uh, a lot of times, in the end, the end user is the one who says, if I'm getting the utility service- I don't care. I don't care. I'm happy, happy about it. Um, but at the same time, uh, this is where we look at a relationship factor and if there can be a mutual understanding, uh, you can 
as a utility, be able to provide and be able also to get good input from what the community is really looking for yeah. um, to be able to also deliver a service that ultimately pr could provide a good source of revenue if you're keeping your customers happy and engaged. I mean, in theory, pardon the analogy, it's like in theory, communism is really fantastic, right? Uh, or socialism is really fantastic. Where it breaks down is in the, re the actual world, right? Where power corrupts, inefficiencies are, are not rooted out through, you know, the, the difficulty of capitalism can be, you know, you have to stay up really, really late, working really, really hard to make efficiencies, right? Um, but you have circumstances like utilities. Another example is private prisons, right? Where you privatize prison service and the fear, and I'm not sure this has been realized, this isn't my area, but the fear of privatization of prisons is, well, I make money when I'm at 85% occupancy. So if somebody wants to do a criminal justice reform bill to keep people out of prison, I'm going to be opposed to that. Now, that's you can't think of a better example of being disaligned with public purpose, right? Keeping people out of jail, reducing crime is a good thing. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. But if I'm in the business of 85% occupancy, I'm going to be like, no, 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 no. Uh, two grams of marijuana, you should be in jail for five years, you know, kind of stuff. I don't know that that's manifest. Uh, manifested around the country where we have privatized prisons, but it, would that be a good example of where you know the fear factor comes in? Yes, absolutely, and I think that's where the agreement comes in. And if you have a good relationship with the private party, and we looked at another factor as part of this study, which was entrepreneurial behavior within the local government, and I think that I love this. By the that's way, that's where. Um, I think that's where we need a little bit of work in terms of these types of public-private partnerships as a public entity. How can we develop these entrepreneurial behaviors internally, <coughs> internally to be able to be more effective at the table when we're developing these agreements? Okay, that's, that's the $64 million question here because... When you're in government or in a big business, and this is not besmirching government, everybody who listens to this podcast knows how much I love, especially local government and how well it works. How do you engender, an, uh, if I'm, my salary is my salary, my workday is my workday, for me to take on new risks, especially a city manager, okay, because we know we have managers in transition for a reason. City managers, when they take a risk and fail, they get thrown out and quickly. And unfairly, uh, how do you engender a sense of entrepreneurship and taking chances, taking risks? Because those chances and those risks are what we, we learn from, right? Somebody said a flip phone's a bad idea. Let's use this touchscreen. Took a risk, and now Apple's the cash wealthiest country, uh, company on the planet. Uh, and that may, may or may not be an accurate example, but you get the point. So how do you... In an environment of uh, people who are not going to get a big bonus, uh, raises and, th and, and, and promotions come in limited quantities, how do you engender a sense of entrepreneurship? And, and is that, always, I got two parts, and is that always a good thing, right? Because if I'm running a, my business and I take a chance on something, I can always take that portion and shut it down or move on to other things or take my profits and cover the loss. I can't do that in government. So help me, help me understand how do you do it, and is it always a good idea? Well, let's start with the basic premise that 
probably only about 15% of local governments can self-fund their needs in infrastructure. So Only 15%? Approximately 15%. Um, and by self-fund, I mean through their general fund taxes or tax basis. Okay. Um, uh, and obviously, you know, taking out debt, taking out bonds, that, those are always alternatives for local governments. But always we come into the, um, the, the reality that taxpayers are always trying to fight for their tax dollar and don't want their taxes to increase on a year-to-year right. basis right. Uh, to be able to support certain initiatives. So, you know, what was interesting is, is what we saw was a lot of it has to do with the influence um, from the government itself and whether or not entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial behaviors are supported um, by the government entity itself. Is there that culture coming from the top? And, and it could be even from the community itself coming down to its elected officials, down to the administrative How level. do you build something like that? And I th- Well, and that's a great question. I think that's something that we're starting to see um, in a lot of local governments. When we're looking at um, agencies, create positions for chief innovation officers. Oh. Um, uh, looking to build a culture of innovation especially not only driven by technology, but innovation of thought, innovation of uh, ideas, and allowing the freedom for local governments and the public sector to think outside the box. And outside the box could be looking at incorporating business practices and business principles Mm -hmm. into local government solutions. There should... While there could be a fear or some pushback in terms of implementing those right away, there shouldn't be a fear of having the discussion and the conversation. Um, And ultimately, um, one of my big interests is how can we build that into the education of our public sector officials? Uh, So when we're talking about things like economic development, we're talking about public-private partnerships, we have staff that is prepared to speak the same language um, and to be able to be effective at the table um, so that our community has that trust when we're engaging and, and making these deals with the private sector. And so you just touched on something. In an era of declining trust in government, it seems to me that what you're saying is, look, public, we're going to try some things differently. And we may fail. Um, but if I have a lot of trust in my local government uh, and they make a mistake, it's like, okay, well, thank you for trying. Um, whether it's uh, outsourcing a new pickleball court or whatever and it, and it doesn't work out, you're going to get blamed. You're going to get yelled at. You're going to get attacked. And if you're focused only on social media, that's going to seem outsized. Um, but allowing for failure, I, it, it seems to me that allowing for failure, allowing for people to make mistakes is part of that culture. Yeah, that's that's a part of entrepreneurship. Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, but at the same time, it's also um, allowing that freedom. And I think that's, uh, you know, there should be eventually a, a allowing uh, the cultivation of entrepreneurial behavior within the local government, I think will allow for the freedom of, uh, or at least the desire to have discussions on uh, novel solutions. And Are there any projects you've worked on that serve as a good example of, of being a little bit more entrepreneurial and it's, it was successful or a failure? Yeah, so 
in the local government I work for, we outsource the majority of our services. We're a, I like to call us a lean, mean, fi small fighting machine, uh, but we deliver full level of services as a local uh, municipality um, to our community, but mainly through private partners. Uh, so much so that, you know, a lot of this, uh, this research has driven us to adopt our own public-private partnership ordinance to start promoting really? and um, looking for ways to um, develop facilities. We have a park facility uh, that we are looking to fund and looking to develop, and public-private partnerships are one of those alternatives that we're currently evaluating. Uh, but a process had to be put in place to ensure that you know these deals aren't bad deals. And yeah, what's that process look like? Uh, well, we have a process, both what we call a solicited process, where we may advertise and say we have a need and we're looking for private partners to deliver that project to us, or vice versa. There's an unsolicited proposal process, and a lot of that is dictated through state law. But what we've done is tweak it, um, leveraging whatever the state law has, has spelled out, but we've tweaked it. Uh, to the needs of our community to ensure that whatever proposals put forth, um, let's say for this park project, the private partner has to be able to spell out the specific community benefits they need to spell out. Are they going to be using okay. any local businesses? Um, they need to spell out their financial capabilities. If we're talking about a $5 million, let's say, gymnasium project, can, do they have the capital or the means to access that capital to deliver on that project? Uh, because that's also a big part of the risk in a lot of public-private partnerships. Yeah. Is, I say I can build a park, I'm halfway through, and I can't. And then who's on the hook? Local government. The local government. And that's where there's been a lot of that pushback and fear around these processes. Uh, but a lot of that has to do with some of the elements that we discussed earlier is the relationship, the mutual understanding, uh, the elements of project management and processes around the project, uh, and the responsibilities are clearly being shared and spelled out in the agreement. And there are a lot of people who would say those goals don't align. Uh, when, when you have a private business, its goals are to make money, um, and the government's role is to provide public service. Uh, what do you say to those folks as to why um, they, they need to reconsider? Because I've heard people say, look, government, I've heard everything from government is a business to government is not a business. And clearly, I believe it's somewhere in the, mean, in, the, in the middle. And there's some parts that are very unbusinesslike. There's some parts that are very businesslike. Like if you run your own utility, you run it like a business. You, you generate profits small p, those dollars stay within the community to provide parks, roads, whatever, uh, as opposed to sending it to some investment group or whatever and leaves the community. So in that regard of running a utility is very business-like. Uh, personnel services or social health services may not be because you're just providing a public good, right, that you need to. Um, so what do you say to those folks who say we should never try to run government like a business? There needs to be at least a conversation and at least a discussion. And at the least bit, I think there needs to be, again, this concept of uh, uh, at least having a review of business best practices when you're faced with a problem and a public problem. 
what I find is, and this is something I learned during the course of my studies, is a lot of times we are so focused on the symptoms of a problem that we're not really solving the problem itself. Uh, and I think that's where... Homelessness lot- would be a great example, right? Uh, the symptoms is, hey, somebody got in a fight on the street corner yesterday with a homeless person. Hey, somebody defecated on the sidewalk. But the symptom, that's a symptom, right? What's the cause? What's going on here? Uh, which is clearly, I mean, that's a whole nother subject about how to deal with that. But um, uh, I think that's a good example. And there's certain things that you can't uh, privatize. And then at that point, why, should, why, why shouldn't we at least consult with or consider consulting with maybe the private or a nonprofit provider or someone who may have certain expertise that may not be embedded within the local government, uh, at least have that conversation, have those discussions um, to be able to provide possible solutions. I think there needs to be a level of openness um, in terms of some of these issues, if especially if it's not inherently embedded in the local government's administration. Um, and that's where I think uh, we need to look at, or at least consider looking at, how do we build some of those entrepreneurial behaviors internally? And so, yeah, but you hit on something that's near and dear to my heart, which is we have this, you know, so we had Jim Hansen on, who um, is a, a senior advisor at FCCMA, he's been in the business 40 years. And one of the things I've been really interested in, because sometimes we think, oh, is this my perception or is it real? The changing makeup of commissions, uh, councils, that used to be business leaders, bankers, um, uh, entrepreneurs, ran for city government. Um, And in an era of social media and cable news, we're getting people coming from uh, both the far left and the far right thinking, instead of having been involved, excuse me, been involved in local government, they're outsiders jumping in and don't understand the mechanics of it. Is this becoming, so if, if, if I'm an established business leader in my community and I decide, you know, I got some spare time on my hand, I really love this town, I want to run for city council. Now, I've, I've served on the planning commission, I've served on a number of committees, I've been in and around government, I understand the levers and how they work, so I come to the table with a fundamental understanding versus I'm a, a MSNBC or Fox News junkie and see people arguing constantly, there's bad, only bad guys and good guys, yada, yada, yada. And now I come and I think my role is to throw bombs and blow things up. Um, are you seeing that change? And it, and, and it almost makes what you're doing more important. Because if, 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 But I, I worry, are we seeing fewer and fewer people coming to the table with business experience say, hey, when I ran an accounting shop, so, so what are your thoughts on, on the changing nature of, of city councils and, and, and what you're trying to achieve? You know, I think there's a dynamic, um, and again, I think, I think this is dependent on locality. Yeah. Right? At least in, in, our, in our community, we've seen a shift to a younger demographic. Um, on the council. On the council. Um, and with that has come uh, a sense of openness, to ideas, new ideas. Um, I think we, we have a council who's um, discussing things like the metaverse and incorporating AI into our local government. Um, we, um, and, and again, I, I don't know if that's a, a global or a bigger phenomenon across, across other localities, but I think 
a lot of times those ideas get quickly shared of what other cities are doing. No, that's concepts. the beauty of local government, right. right? We are a beaker of experimentation. You know, you have 411 municipalities. They're all doing things slightly differently. And conferences like FCCMA conference, FLC conferences, the FLM conferences, is that shared, hey, this is what worked. Hey, let me tell you what didn't work, <laughs> which is really important, right? Uh, and I think that's one of the inherent uh, challenges that we have as administrators is to be able, depending on the sense that we have from our council is to how can we still innovate within the span and scope of the makeup and the philosophy of our council? Um, and how can we slowly plant the seeds for innovation and openness to ideas such as entrepreneurship? I think a lot of it also can be tied to economic development. I think economic development is, a, is an area that's ripe for building inherent entrepreneurial behaviors within the local government. And that's what these economic development professionals do. But some of those concepts should be shared all the way from the bottom up. Um, so and economic development's got to be one of those areas where we're aligned because economic development means businesses make more money. It means the government has better tax revenue and they can provide more services. And so uh, they're going to be aligned in, in that regard. Uh, and EDCs exist I mean, that's, uh, I guess, a sort of a public-private partnership. You're funding a group to help, you know, expand economic development in a community. And, and clearly that model works because they're everywhere, right? And they have different names, but by and large that, that, that works. I remember going to a lecture um, at the Florida League of Mayors several years ago. Uh, uh, the then outgoing mayor of St. Petersburg, uh, who's, who believes in the spirit, Tony, that you do, which is we need to steal from business good ideas and where we can incorporate them. And one of his ideas, for example, was there's a lot of complaints about how long it took to get uh, permits through the building uh, uh, departments. And I said departments on purpose because that was part of the problem was it had to go through so many steps. And he said, we put a program in place that said, I think it was 48 hours, you're going to get an answer. Might not be the answer you want, but you're going to get the feedback immediately or you get your money back on the application. And that created, you know, a lot of tension, uh, a lot of enthusiasm. It also took time because the way they had been doing things, because you can't just wave a magic wand and want something to happen, right? And so he said, instead of the, the permit going linearly, it went to, you know, if, if, if it had to go to three departments at, the, at once, they went at all at the same time. So they had to redo their computer systems. They had to redo their processes. So everybody got the permit at the same time. And so... Division A, Division B, Division C, we're all looking at it at the same time. It didn't go Division A, then over to Division B. Oh, the guy from Division B is taking off today to take his family on vacation or whatever, and that's going to delay it, uh, put it in place, and create an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, is that a good example of the kind of stuff you're, you're working on, I see? That's a great example, and I think you touched on one element uh, that is a great example of how entrepreneurial behavior can be even implemented at the lowest levels. Customer service. Uh, just like you mentioned, facilitating permits and building permits, streamlining processes, making government more efficient, um, looking for ways to uh, think outside the box. Just for customer service, the community is a partner. The clients that come into your city hall are partners. And there should be no fear to be able to empower your staff 
to be able to be innovative, proactive, uh, you know, challenge them to provide better service and take risks in an effort to provide better services to right. our customers. Those are all elements of entrepreneurship. So how can we build that into our staff training, our education, um, to allow better customer service in our local government agencies? I think that's a great example uh, um, that you just mentioned of implementing that. And you know, and it, it does what we see in business, which is it creates anxiety, it creates tension, but you know, and when you work it through, it creates a sense of accomplishment. Well, let me give you another example that could be almost this. You know, we talk about alignment and and, and relationship, but disalignment. So you mentioned customer service. Uh, many municipalities have call centers where you call in, you have a complaint. Hey, my trash didn't get picked up. Hey, this didn't happen or this did happen. And yet, when you talk to, when you see in the private sector, uh, the customer service personnel on the phone uh, are time limited. You got to get off the phone. This whole seven minute concept. If you're on the phone for longer than seven minutes, we're losing money. You got to get the person off, even if it means sorry and click or oh we got disconnected or oh, I have to call you back. Bad idea, right? For customer service. And so if I outsource my phone center, uh, how do you re- how do you reconcile that? Because I'm a call center and I know I start losing money if, at seven minutes in one second. You as a local government are like, no, 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 no. We need to make sure our people are being taken care of because there are people, and that's what we exist for. So how do you, how do you reconcile those kind of differences? Yeah, that's again. I think it comes down to elements that are positioned in an agreement. If you were to do that partnership, and uh, I think, I think these are elements. For example, if you do performance-based type agreements, where you, as the public entity spell out the performance metrics that you want as a standard and let's say customer service or customer service metric that there needs to be follow-up within 48 hours or 36 hours and you can put into a certain element where into a contract where the private sector partner may not get paid if they don't meet that criteria so so in this example you would say we disallow for time limits um, you're, you're going to be measured on customer satisfaction surveys. We're going to survey these people once a quarter um, or uh, positive resolution versus non-resolution, keeping, uh, keeping tabs on that, which was which which tricky because you could create perverse incentives, right? You could say, oh, no, no, no time limits. They could spend a half hour on the phone and suddenly things are going up. So uh, I see what you're saying. So balancing that and making sure... In the agreements, it's clearly spelled out what's expected, what the goals are, and what the criteria are that meets the needs of the city. Are there times when you've been involved in something and you say, you know what, this is just something we cannot uh, do a PPP on? Or are you a believer that everything can be put into a private public fund? No, I don't think everything can be into a... Everything should be open. Uh, in terms of discussion for a potential partnership, but not everything necessarily should be uh, a public-private partnership. And that's part of what the study that I did kind of outlined was, this is the model. Here's a model. Here you go, local government. This is where you should measure whether or not a potential public-private partnership would be successful. Measure these elements internally when you're evaluating a project 
and then make that decision. What's a good example of something that should never be privatized? Uh, you mentioned a couple of, of areas um, that uh, I think, um, uh, especially when there's a high social component to it, um, there are areas, uh, I mean, Running an arts and crafts for the old ladies down the block, you're not going to make, nobody's going to make any money on that. It's not profitable. And once you start, you're going to make them mad. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that in, in some programming. Um, at the same time, you can still have a private instructor deliver the programming. Yeah, okay. You know, and you know, it's interesting because I look at the, the camping in Florida, right? We have these fabulous state parks. We open up the camping portal and it's full on day one. And I keep thinking to myself, why don't they raise the prices? If I'm running a business and I sell out on day one out of day 100, 365 days a year, I mean, literally when they open up the portal for campsites in Florida, because they're like $12 a night, yet a private place is $45 a night, I'm like, why won't we raise the prices, slow down the demand, and we're still gonna sell out and pay for revenue that can go to improving those parks. Um, I, I wish you could take over the parks in Florida and put these kind of programs in place. No one's going to mind paying $25 a night when the private sector is charging $45, $100 a night for the same product or less product because some of these state parks are so gorgeous. Um, but that would be a good example where you could outsource it and privatize and it. Another uh, you mentioned which one maybe you wouldn't consider would be public safety. There you go. So you, you may not. You get uh, paid by the number of people you arrest. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? So, the, you know, you look at public safety as it's one a really of good idea. Yeah, yeah good that point. you may want. Um, at the same time, uh, that's not not to encourage local governments. For example, we outsource or we have a partnership with our county police department, and we have an interlocal um, or intergovernmental partnership right. for them to provide public safety services. But clearly, healthcare services for them might be privatized. Uh, Getting the uniforms cleaned. Correct. Obviously, you're not, you know, you're putting tires on cars. You're, you, you. This is interesting because it's so enlightening. And I guess uh, the the listeners to this podcast should be laughing at me by now, going, Vancouver, how did you not realize this? This is so eye opening. How much of local government and all governments privatize out so many services, not in a negative way. You got to buy tires. You can't open up your own Goodyear factory. You have to buy vehicles for your cops to drive in. You have to buy uh, sound systems, uh, communication systems, all that. Uh, so in some regard, those two are. Now, that's just simply a purchase agreement, not necessarily a long-term partnership. And that was the driver a lot for my the reasons of, of my study. Um, the government I work for, like I mentioned, outsources the majority of the services. They did it as a way to reduce overhead, uh, reduce liability. Um, for example, our landscape crews. We don't have to buy equipment. We don't have to maintain it. We don't have to hire and fire staff. But you got a company um, that does it. And we have a company that does it. Um, and your role there is oversight, not necessarily. Developing the contracts, developing the standards, developing the specifications, and ensuring that they deliver the, the services that we expect as a community. Oh, I, I really appreciate your perspective on this. has been very enlightening to me. Um, we always have the same last question. Uh, Miami Lakes. Um, tell us something cool about Miami Lakes that we don't know. So Miami Lakes is actually uh, a community developed by the former senator and Governor Bob Graham's family. 
Um, they master planned that back in the 60s. Uh, and one of the unique components is that it has 101 parks within its 6.5 square mile radius. So 101 the, parks? The concept of um, walking to your local park as an ideal master plan, uh, that's made a reality uh, within this, this community. So you can walk pretty much to a park um, anywhere from, from your home in Miami Lakes. Uh, and also, we have seven lake from be- six lake from beaches within our community, which is also a highlight um, that people enjoy as part of our park system. But So the name lakes actually applies. It does apply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 101 parks within six square miles? Yes. That almost seems like an impossibility, um, but that's fantastic. And what a, what a nice legacy for the Graham family. Uh, really one of my favorite people uh, ever. Um, love the guy, um, but one, what a wonderful legacy for his family. Well, Tony, thank you for being with us, and thank you for sharing. It was very, very enlightening, very helpful. I hope uh, the listeners learned a little bit about how to be a little bit of a better public-private partnership. And uh, what you need to do when, you, when the study comes out, you need to send it to us so we can put it on the FCCMA website so people can read Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you, thank thank you very much. Folks, this is Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Um, if you have a guest you would like to have appear on the show, uh, simply email me at svancor at vancorjones.com or you can message FCCMA on Facebook. Thanks so much for being with us.